John chapter number 10 is where we're at. Uh, we left off here in verse 31 last week. We'll read 30 and 31 to recap it here in a minute. But this is an extremely important text. It's an extremely important text for two reasons. All, all the Bible is important. But this text really is elevated to a degree. Uh, reason number one is that this is the last public discourse Jesus is going to have in John's gospel. So we're about halfway through the book of John. And from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 10 is Jesus' public ministry, his public discourses, feeding 5,000 and talking to a big group of people, a healing a man on the Sabbath and all the religious leaders coming. So we've seen Jesus talking to these religious leaders and publicly for quite some period. Once you get to chapter 11, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to turn the page and be in chapter 11. Chapter 11 through chapter 20 really covers a week of Jesus's life. It covers uh, preceding his crucifixion, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. So it's a very small window of time. And chapters 11 and 20 is Jesus privately with his disciples in the upper room, praying on his own in the garden. Uh, they're raising Lazarus from the dead with the select few people around. So this is the last time that Jesus is going to uh, be clear from John's perspective on who he is and why he's come. And, and this is public in nature. This is also important because if you remember last week, we left off with the tensions high. Jesus had just claimed that he was one with the Father, that he had equality with the Father, that he claimed divinity with the Father, and they took up stones to stone him. This is Jesus before the firing squad about to be executed. So the tension is palpable in this moment, and here is where we find ourselves in John 10. So let's look at it and see what happens. John 10, we said last week, Jesus ended his discourse with, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone in verse 31. So I'm the same level of being and nature as the father, and the Jews can't believe their ears. What did he just say? He just said that he was God. So they're going to execute him. Verse number 32. Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? What have I done? Healed people? What are you going to stone me for? Valid question. And their answer, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. So they say, it isn't for what you've done, for what you've said. You were blasphemous. You've said that you are God. They're clear. They know what he said. And it's very ironic. They say, you're a man making yourself God. When in reality, he was God who made himself a man. He's been trying to show them this over and over and over. This is what John has been trying to prove to us, that John led his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's been, he's been proving that this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus taught. So the last public discourse, here it is, five verses, verses 34 through 38. I'm going to tell you up front, you're going to read this and you're not going to exactly understand what he said, but we'll explain it. It's, it's gold. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world, that if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. 
But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. There it is, Jesus' last public moment of teaching according to John. Verse number 13. This didn't calm them down. They didn't, you know, start to believe. They still want to grab him up, snatch him up. They, they want to hurt him. Verse 40, he went away again beyond Jordan to the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. So he gets out in the wilderness. Many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Let me pray. Brittany's going to sing, and then we're going to try to understand most specifically verses 34 to 38, that last public discourse, what Jesus is trying to get at here. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we get to open up your word and study it this morning. I'm excited uh, to glean from this text what, what would you, you would have for us. And I pray that you would speak to us through this song. Lord, I pray that you would, you would remind our minds, our hearts of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word more this morning. Lord, that you would incline our hearts to your testimony. Help us to, to want it, put that desire in there. Lord, that you would speak to us and that through your word and through your spirit, you would, you would move today. We love you and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here to 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad that the early church sang when they got together and that even the instruction in the New Testament was that the early church should sing and we as a church should sing because now thousands of years later you have more songs written to and about Jesus than anyone else who ever walked the face of the earth by a mile. And that means that we have so many different ways. You just think about this morning, the ways that we have communicated the gospel message already, that it's all about the blood, that the choir is saying that, right? It's all about Calvary. We, we, uh, Rich went through the congregational that, oh, how he loves you and me, and Jesus to Calvary to go. He was broken and, and spilled out, used up for me. What does that say? The same thing in different words. The same thing that Jesus went to the cross for us, that Jesus loved us and died for us and took our place to purchase eternal life for us. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So I hope that you hear the gospel message like six times this morning, that you hear it from someone as you shake hands, that you hear it in the choir, that you hear it in the song. That's my rant. I'm going to go back to John 10 now, okay? John 10. Here we are in a moment of crisis it's dangerous, it's precarious, the tension is high, they're going to execute Jesus, and what does Jesus start to do? He starts to do exegesis and study of the scripture. He quotes Psalm 82.6 and does a Bible study with them, and he more or less says, they were called little g-gods, and we'll explain what that verse was and what that means in a moment, but they were called little g-gods, how much more can you call me God? Look at verse number 35 and 36. What he says, they called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken. Say ye of him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world that thou blasphemest because... How much more reason do you have to call me God? The one who is set apart, sanctified? The one who is on a divine mission sent from the father? But then he says in verse 37, 38, don't just take my word for it. I'm doing God-sized things. Look at my works. Those speak for themselves. So now you know, and he ends this discourse with, I, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Just like he said, I and the Father are one. This is Jesus doubling down on his divinity. And let's just stop for a moment and understand what's happening here. Two things are at play. Jesus clearly teaching them again, I am God in the flesh. You're constantly coming up against us in John. We, we even talked about this last week, so I won't belabor this point because we have hit this over and over and over again since John chapter five and even in John chapter number one. But the second thing that is happening here is kind of this diamond inside of this text is that you have a unique moment where you see so clearly Jesus's attitude towards the scriptures. 
And his attitude towards the scriptures is summed up in this one little jewel at the end of verse number 35. And he says, the scripture cannot be broken. That's his thesis. It's it's almost an aside. He almost just runs past it like, hey, we all know this. The scripture can't be broken. So let me quote to you Psalm 86 and let me build my case off of that because that's valid and that's reliable. It's something that, that he says, we know this. The scripture is unbreakable. What does it mean that we have an unbreakable word? What does it mean that the scriptures can't be broken? I would suggest to you that it means a few things. It means that the scriptures can't be disproven. It means that the scriptures should not be disobeyed. And it means that the scriptures must not be disregarded. Now, I don't have time for all three of those this morning. We're going to do a little mini series inside of our Big John series, okay? It's going to be a Russian doll sort of, sort of thing. We're going to do a little series for a couple weeks, not next week, next week's friend day. Uh, I'll go straight gospel that greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. We'll do that for friend day. But after that, we'll come, we're going to come back to this and understand these three aspects that the scripture cannot be disproven. We'll get that today. But then we're going to look at it should not be disobeyed and it must not be disregarded. We're going to whittle away. What does this mean that Jesus says we have an unbreakable word? What does that mean? It means it can't be disproven. Well, what does that mean? It means that all of the Bible is utterly true. That's the simplest way I could put it. All of the Bible is utterly true. What is a broken word? A broken word is a false word or an untrue word. If you break your promise, what does that mean? What you said does not correspond to reality. You promised something that you could not deliver on, that it actually was in fact false, not true. And Jesus is saying, we have scripture in its entirety is true. Nothing it says, nothing it claims, nothing it teaches, nothing it promises is false. He didn't say it is not broken. He said it, it cannot be broken. There's a difference there. It's not like, oh, it could be, but it's just not right now. It's that it cannot be, and nothing is untrustworthy. Everything is true. Nothing can be annulled. Nothing can be set aside. Nothing can be proved false. And to make this statement, he goes to Psalm 82, verse 6, and he quotes, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, what's that talking about? That is in reference to the judges of Israel who at this point in time were doing a bad job judging Israel and they were not being just. And the reason that they're called little g gods in Psalm 82.6 by God himself is because they in Israel represented God as his judges. They exercised God's authority. They were to uphold God's word and to judge God's people. And Jesus is saying, if they referred to them in this way as gods, and they represented God imperfectly, and they were human, and they were just men, I am come representing God perfectly. They had authority to judge God's people. I have authority to judge the world, including you. And if they called them gods, how much more should you call me God, the divine judge set over the world, set apart, not an earthly commissioning, but a heavenly commissioning, the one whom the Father sent. How much more can I do this? And what is he doing? He's making his case off of not the books of the law, but the Psalms, not a Psalm of David that's well known. This isn't Psalm 23 that you could probably quote part of. This is Psalm 82 that you probably haven't memorized that one. Not a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Asaph, and not even the whole Psalm. He just takes this one little snippet, not even the whole verse, a part of a verse 
kind of an obscure verse, honestly. If we could say it's a backwoods verse, I mean, that, that would be the way to put it. Nobody ever memorized Psalm 82, 6 in Awana. Anyone ever put this on a three by five card and memorize, I have said ye are gods and all of you the children of the most high? You probably read this text this morning with me and thought he quoted scripture where? What scripture is that? I'm not sure I remember that one exactly. He takes this kind of obscure verse and he builds his case on this. Why can he do this? This little snippet of a verse in Psalm 82 from Asaph. How can he do that and prove his point from that? Because all of scripture is unbreakable. He can go anywhere he wants inside the scripture and none of it can be disproven. All of it is valid. All of it is true. What's he doing? He's practicing what he taught in Matthew chapter number five. Matthew number five, Jesus said, don't think that I'm come to destroy the law, that I'm come to destroy the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and heaven and earth will not pass. And you can understand not one jot or one tittle will pass away. All will be fulfilled. What's he say? Not, not one jot, not one tittle. That means every little piece of this is valid. Every nook, every cranny. Jesus is, is teaching what the church has taught for years as the plenary inspiration of the Bible. You probably haven't used the word plenary recently. I get that. Maybe if you went to a convention or to a conference, you would go to a plenary Anyone ever done that? Raise of hands, anyone ever? Okay, a few of you, okay. What's a plenary? It's instead of being broken out into 50 different groups and 50 different topics, everybody at the everyone's together, all of it. We will actually do a plenary here in a few weeks with our missions conference. Instead of having our groups spread out during the mornings, we'll actually bring them all together in this room for a missionary question and answer time. We won't call it plenary because that would confuse people, but it's what we're doing. It, me it means everything. And, and Jesus is practicing just that, that all of the scripture is inspired, that all of the scripture is valid little piece of Psalm 82 that you probably haven't even really registered that you read it, even that I can build a case off of. He's practicing what Paul would later write. Paul would write to Timothy and tell him that all of the scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction and in righteousness. What's he say? All of this is God breathed. This is actually to show you what's right, doctrine. This is to, to set you right. but all of this came from God. I had someone just a few weeks ago, I was talking to them, uh, best I know an unbeliever, grew up in church a little bit, but best I know an unbeliever, and was trying to share scriptures and some different things. And they looked at me and they said, what you just said, that sounds very Old Testament-y. And I had never heard that phrase before, but I looked back there and I said, you know, that is the Bible and scripture. And I, I do believe that and base my life on it. And they just kind of stared at me blankly, like dumbfounded. And, and their presupposition or their assumption was that, yeah, I'm a Christian. Maybe I'll, I'll listen to the words of Jesus and maybe, you know, I'll look at the New Testament. But you know, the Old Testament, that's, that's so bloodthirsty. That's so, it almost seems like a different God. Why would you go there? Why, why would you base your life off of that? Their assumption was that I would base my life on part of the Bible, but on another part of the Bible. There are supposed Christians that are red-letter Christians. Anyone ever heard of a red-letter Christian? What's a red-letter Christian? Someone who says, I just live by the words of Jesus. 
I don't, really, uh, I don't really piddle with the Old Testament. I don't even really piddle with the words of Paul or Peter. I mean, Paul was like, I don't know. He was talking culturally sometimes. He just said some things. They just don't really apply today. And he seemed mad half the time. And I just, you know, I, I just based my life on the words of Jesus. The only problem with that is that the red letters tell you that you have to listen to and obey the black letters. Because Jesus says that all of the scripture is unbreakable, that all of it, and that you can go to a little piece of psalm and that you can build a case off of that because that in fact is the word of God and that in fact is inspired and that in fact is scripture. That's not just some like add on or some random thing that you can just relegate to the side. That actually is the word of God. Now, let me, let me help categorize this for you a little bit. When we say that the scripture is unbreakable, what we mean by that, part of it, is that the scripture cannot be disproven. All of it's inspired. Plenary inspiration. All of the Bible. And what that means is several things. So that means that the Bible is, in fact, historically accurate. Okay, so the fact that the Bible is historically accurate doesn't prove that it's from God. But if it's from God, it has to be historically accurate. That makes sense? If this is in fact all true and unbreakable, then naturally you're going to find evidence inside of the Bible with history that is going to back up and validate the truth claims of the Bible. Words that you just breeze past, this place you've never heard of, this guy that you don't know how to pronounce his name. That's why those words are important because it is showing you that there were these people in these places, things that could be substantiated and corroborated. And when you know that that can be substantiated, that leans you into that this in fact was true. Luke is uh, the author of Luke, of course, but also the author of Acts. And Luke is a master of this. Islands, all of which have been historically verified. Now take that and contrast that to say the Book of Mormon, which is the fictional story of Jesus showing up to the Native Americans and telling them about his crucifixion and his resurrection before the pilgrims got here. And I'll quote for you what John Ackenberg and John Weldon said. No Book of Mormon cities have ever been located. No Book of Mormon person, place, nation, or name has ever been found. No Book of Mormon artifacts. No Book of Mormon scriptures. No Book of Mormon inscriptions. Nothing demonstrates the Book of Mormon as anything other than myth or invention has ever been found. That's important. It's important that you know that you have an unbreakable word which is historically accurate. It's important that you know that you have an unbreakable word that's scientifically correct. Now, this isn't a science book. I'll be straight up. It's not a science book. It's not designed to be your textbook for science. But where it speaks of things scientifically, it's accurate and it's correct. One pastor said it this way. This is not meant to tell you how the heavens go. This is meant to tell you how to go to heaven. And that's the truth. This is after redemption. This is after your soul. This is after you understanding who Jesus is and the gospel story. But it does speak on science. And time and time and time again, science will change their textbook. Science will change what they're saying. The prevailing theories will change every hundred years and they'll turn over. Chriswell wrote this in his book, The Bible for Today's World. He said that it's estimated that the Louvre in Paris has three and a half miles of science books. Most every one of them is obsolete. A book that used to be the gold standard, what someone thought, what the scientific theory was that they took as gospel, that now is proven that, you know what, we figured something else. We, we invented a telescope and what do you know? 
we thought Ptolemy was right for 1,300 years that there were about 1,054 stars. But Galileo invented that telescope and Jeremiah was right that the host of the heavens cannot be numbered. There's far more than we ever thought as much as we scientifically tried to count. Even go way back. It is astounding to me that the Bible knew that the earth hung upon nothing. Job wrote that, oldest book in the Bible. The earth hung upon nothing. Think if you had, you had no science background and you lived thousands of years ago, everything falls to the ground, everything rests on something. It's not like floating around, right? So the Egyptians thought that the earth sat on big pillars. And how would they have known otherwise, right? The Greeks thought that the earth was on the, the back of Atlas. Ever seen that, right? I look like Atlas, don't I? Right? <laughs> the Hindus thought but it was like on a, a team of elephants and those team of elephants sat on a giant cold snake swam in the great cosmic sea and that's how the earth was supported but job told you long before all of that the earth hung hang on nothing that there it is god just put it there and it's not resting on anything how did the bible know that you can go reset not too many years ago, if someone was sick, we would say they had bad blood. You probably never said that, but maybe your grandfather or your great-grandfather said that. And if someone was sick, they would try to get the bad blood out, right? George Washington died because they leached him to death. They took all his blood away. Barber poles are white and red. You know what that white stripe or the red stripe on a barber pole is? Because barbers used to not only cut hair, they used to cut your skin and bleed you if you were sick. But we know, and the Bible knew long before that in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Don't go draining that blood. You're going to die. It don't work out very well, right? Oh, the Bible has proven to be scientifically correct. It's not designed to be your science textbook, but it, it, it showed us. Where do we get anesthesia from? Well, we read Genesis. It was like God put Adam to sleep and did surgery on him. He took his rib out. Let's us try that. Works well. I'm glad for that, aren't you? I'm glad we don't have to, you know, hear our tooth getting crunched at the dentist or that we don't have to be awake while they cut us open anymore because we learn that from, from the word of God. We know that if the word is unbreakable, that it's prophetically perfect. It has to be. There, there can't be one misstep there. And there are thousands of fulfilled prophecies, some small and some huge. The most important of which center on the life of Jesus Christ his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And a lot of people have said, you know, they've looked at the evidence that the Old Testament prophesied all of this about this Messiah. And then it, it, it happened in Jesus. You can mark it just one after one after one after one. And, and the prevailing thought is, well, we don't know how to explain that other than Jesus knew the scriptures and Jesus just kind of set the deck. He rigged it so it would be that way. Jesus rigged his birth in Bethlehem. Like, how'd he do that? Other than that he was God, you know, calling the shots. He rigged his death on a cross, as Psalm 22 predicted he would? Yeah, okay. Jesus rigged that, as Jeremiah said, 700 years before Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? You don't rig that stuff. That, that is all the word of God proving to you over and over and over again that it's unbreakable, that it can't be disproven, that it, in fact, is valid from cover to cover, every nook and cranny, and every piece of it. If I told you that I was clairvoyant, and that I could predict the future. 
And let's just say I had 10% accuracy. 10% of the time, the claims that I made, they came true. And I walked up to you and said, hey, I'm having a moment. Hmm, don't take a left-hand turn when you go home. You're going to get in a wreck. If you knew I had 10% accuracy, you'd hesitate a little bit before you took a left-hand turn. Let's say I had 50% accuracy. Half the time, I was spot on. And I told you that. You'd probably avoid a left-hand turn. Now, if I had 100% accuracy, you'd definitely avoid it and you'd figure out a different route home. When you come to the Word of God, you're not talking about 10%. You're not talking about 50%. You're not talking about 90%. You're talking about 100% of the time. When it says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And you fi- Now, there are still some unfulfilled prophecies in here that are yet to come, but the majority of them are done. And you can look and you can see that it predicted things that no one could have possibly predicted or have known that that, that was going to happen. You find that the Word of God is wonderfully unified, and it would be if it was from God. This book is 66 different books, all put together in one big book, written by 40 different authors whose lives span 1,600 years, written from 13 different countries, three different continents, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Shepherds, kings, fishermen, princes, scholars, historians, physicians, all wrote this. I can't get my wife to agree with me half the time. And we live in the same time frame in the same house. You have 40 different authors over 1,600 years in three different languages on three different continents and it just kind of magically fits together and it just kind of magically comes with, with, these, with these, this unity. There's, there's one theme, the redemption of man. There's one hero, the Lord Jesus. There's one villain, the devil. There's one purpose, the glory of God. That's it. It's what the Bible is all about. And you find that over and over and over and over again. You find that this book is powerfully transforming. It's a bit more existential than, than logical, but valid nevertheless, because the Bible says about itself that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And there are millions upon millions of people who have found this to be exactly what they needed for their soul, exactly what they needed for direction in life, to transform and to change them and to shape them. And my favorite one is that this book is uniquely discerning. I think without all that, you can just read the Bible on its own. And when you understand what it says, you know man didn't write that. that we struggle to even know ourselves. The more I study this and the more I understand this, the more I realize not a chance man came up with that. The things that it says are, are so profound, yet so simple and so classic and timeless that it applied thousands of years ago to a different culture and all the cultures today. And to what it says about relationships and parenting and family and marriage and salvation and our own heart that over and over and over again, it nails who we are and how we, how we operate. This is exactly what Hebrews said. It says that the word of God is actually a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, that it goes deep and and it shows us things that we would have never known otherwise because a God who made us said, here's how you're made and here's how you operate, that there's so much truth here. There's a quote that's almost 200 years old by H.L. valid for what I'm trying to say today. He said, for 1,800 years, skeptics have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today solid as a rock. 
The skeptics with all their assaults make about as much an impression on this book as a man with a hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When a French monarch proposed persecuting Christians, an elderly advisor told him, Sir, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the skeptics have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it a long time ago. Emperors and popes and kings and priests and princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it, and yet they died and this book lives on. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that Jesus said that the scripture is unbreakable. And part of what that means is that it's not false. It's true, all of it, in its entirety, every piece. But I can't you. Let me make this more applicable. Okay, thank you for the little Bible lesson, Pastor. Let's make this applicable. What that means is you have something you can bank on. If you have a book full of undiluted truth, that means that you can bank your life and your actions upon it. Now, I want you to turn to Psalm 119 to give you an example of this. I want to read this text for you. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God, it is in your notes, and we'd love to give you a copy, actually. Psalm 119, it's a big chapter. It's the biggest chapter in all the Bible. I just want to read a couple verses. I want you to look at verse 41 through 48. I'm going to take this little chunk of Scripture and help you see what life is supposed to look like when you bank on the word of God and you put your trust in it and you let it guide you. This is what happens. Psalm 119, look at verse 41. If you're in the habit of circling things on your outline, heard thy statutes, thy precepts, every time it refers back to the Bible, just circle it. I'll emphasize it for you as we go along. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation, according to, here it is, thy word, verse 41. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me, for I trust in thy word. There it is again. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in, here it is again, thy judgments. So shall I keep, here it is, I'm never gonna stop. I will walk at liberty. Why? For I seek thy, here it is, precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings. I will not be ashamed. I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. I will meditate in thy statutes. Over and over and over again, he refers to the word of God. And the psalmist says here, I'm gonna walk at liberty because I've studied your precepts. I know your word so well that there is freedom, that there is clarity, there is a lack of confusion as I navigate this life. I'm gonna walk at liberty. I don't feel constrained. I feel, I feel foggy about this. I know what to do. I know what I can bank on. I know the course that should be charted. He says, I have an answer in verse number 42 for those that reproach me. I no longer fear man. I know where my hope lies. I can answer them. They can be against me. They can be against your word. They can be against what I have to say, but I can walk in certainty because of this. I have an answer for that. In a day and age where doubt is all the rage, 
You want to go through life easy, not make people mad, not make people frustrated. They'll, they'll never categorize you. Just doubt everything. Never be certain about anything. Oh, I'm constantly wondering. I don't know. I mean, it's my truth, but you can have your truth. And who knows? What can we really bank on? I mean, it'll all be disproven probably in 100 years anyway. And now you want, you want our culture to find you a little bit distasteful. I hope that you don't want that, but it just will happen. Be certain. Be 100% certain. This is the word of God. I can follow this and I won't go wrong. I'm certain Jesus for sure he died for my sins and that he rose from the dead. I know he gave me eternal life. I know what he's done in my life. I know that I get to miss hell because of that. You, you want to make people angry? You can be certain. But the psalmist says, I have something certain. And I'm going to act like I don't. I know that I can have an answer for people. He says it this way in verse number 46. I'll tell it before a king. Not the commoner, not the peasant, not my peer group. I'll stand before a king and I'll let him know this is what I'm banking on. I have, I have the judgments of God, the precepts of God, the word of God. I study this. I meditate this. I put my life on this. In verse 48, he says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to lift up my hands to those commandments. I'm not hiding this. Chips are all in. I trust God's word. What is the psalmist doing here? All through this entire psalm, but this particular section, what's he doing? It's a picture of boldness and gladness being produced and birthed in David because he's certain in and submitting to the word of God. I'm certain of that. I'm going to submit to that. And all of a sudden, what starts to come out of him? Joy. What starts to come out of him? Confidence, driving out the fear of man, allowing him to walk boldly, allowing him to walk at liberty, allowing him to know that he has sure footing in life. He has something he can bank on. That's not just a he had that, man, wish we could. You got that. According to Jesus, you got that. You have an unbreakable word. valid. You can trust it more than you can trust your own thoughts. So here's what this means. First of all, let me address, if you're not a follower of Jesus, really my point this morning is not to try to convince you to become a follower of Jesus, but I hope that you will. And if the authority of the Bible is a hurdle for you, I hope that you'll understand and apply your mind and your brain to that and that you'll understand that the Bible's not scared of your questions. You can bring those, you can get those answered. It's absolutely true. Personally, okay, I've had seasons of my life, months, seasons of my life in different points of time where I really had to struggle and wrestle out the certainty of the word of God and doubt crept in and, and I, I, had to, I had to take my questions to the Bible and just faith wasn't gonna get it done. I'm not talking about when I was eight. Like that's real and you can do that as a believer. But if you're an unbeliever, know the Bible, there's so much proof for the truth claims of, of this book being valid that it's, it's out of control. Not the least of which is that Jesus rose from the dead and that he told you this was true. But really my intent this morning is to attack you if you are a believer. You follow him in all things, not just some things. And one of the things you would follow him in is his attitude towards the scriptures. And you cannot say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but yet I'm just going to run away from what this is saying. 
You have to know and follow him in this, that the scripture cannot be broken. That the word of God is unbreakable. That it is true. That it is valid. So do you have the same attitude towards the scriptures that he does? Let me put it another way. Is the scripture as central to your heart and your life as it was to Jesus? Because I find it astounding that in this moment where he's about to be executed, he goes and studies the Bible with him. Let, let me pull out this verse and let me talk about that. Let me, let me make this the foundation for my claims. You know that all through the life of Jesus, not just here, over and over again, he teaches, thus saith the Lord, as it is written, the wilderness by the devil. What does he do? He quotes scripture. When he's here about to be executed, what does he do? He goes back to the scripture. You can see over and over again that this is the focal point, that this is so central to his life. And you that this has to be just as central to you. And what you'll find is that if you do this, I'm convinced of this, the longer I study God's word, the more I try to apply it to my life, the more I will walk at liberty and that you will have a joy and a confidence and a peace in your life and sure footing, something to bank on if you'll bank your life upon this. Why? Because the scripture cannot be broken. It's unbreakable. 